Hello and a very good morning to you. My name is Jean-Paul Wright and I am today sat in the beautiful kitchen of Claire Southworth. Claire has moved down to Hove. For those of you who don't know the geography of the UK, Hove is a beautiful, beautiful part or on the edge or actually Claire you can tell me is it part of Brighton or is it? It is, it's called Brighton and Hove and the boundaries are a little bit blurred so Brighton is really busy and bustly and vibrant and Hove is a little bit more genteel. And it looks genteel because the architecture down here seems to me very different to what you'll find next door in Brighton. It is, it's the most beautiful architecture, beautiful Victorian and Georgian properties Flute player, flute teacher, author, performer. What made you move away from London down to this beautiful part of the country? Well, we were living in a, a beautiful village in Hertfordshire, um, but you had to drive everywhere. So it was a little bit limiting. We wanted to move before we were too old to a place where you could walk everywhere. And we've always loved being by the sea. I was born by the sea in Southport in Lancashire. So we spent a couple of years looking around the coast and finally arrived here. And Hove is a fabulous place to live. We're sort of three minutes away from the, from the seafront. We're surrounded by cafes, shops, restaurants, and we walk everywhere. I did notice when I parked up outside your house today that I could see the sea. You can, from the front door. And I must admit, for that, that envy flashed past me. I also noticed you have a couple of dogs, so it marries in well being down here, doesn't it? It does. We've got two big retrievers called Pete and Minnie, very lively. <laughs> and they're not with us at the moment because they're so lively, I had them sent away so that we could actually talk in peace. <laughs> <laughs> right. The reason I'm down in Sunny Hove today, and yes, it is sunny, and yes, I do want an ice cream because I can see the sea. It's the old child coming out in me, Claire. The reason I'm down here is to begin the recording of the Talking Flute series. And that is going to be a great new series of everything flutes. Flute playing, flute interviews, talking about flutes, flute studies, and generally something to, of interest to every flute player, no matter what age. And the most exciting part about it is it's very interactive. And that Claire is going to be accepting questions to include in future podcasts. And to do that, you would email flutepodcasts at gmail.com. So very simple, really. So what's all this about, Claire? Well, like you say, it's going to be all things flute. So we can talk about uh, repertoire, points of technique, how to practice. But one of the most important aspects, I think, is that I'm going to be chatting to all my friends from around the world. So not just uh, flute players, but also maybe accompanists and arrangers composers. Lots of people who are connected with the flute and we're going to ask them lots of interesting questions, not formal, very informal, and to try and get an idea of the, the person behind their flute connection. Great, so you're going to try and get into their head, are you? <laughs> I'm going to get into their heads, I hope. And some interesting questions, non-fluty? Non-fluty, yes. I mean, it could be anything like what you do in your free time, to what's your favourite food, what have you did you last see at the cinema? You know, it's a huge area of conversation. Okay then, Claire, let's introduce you to our audience. Because lots of people will know you. Lots of people have heard of you from your publications, your recordings, and obviously from your teaching position in London. But how did it all begin? How did Claire Southworth, the flute player, start? 
Well, it began because I didn't want to play the piano. I'd been given some piano lessons at the age of about six, but they were with a very scary nun at a convent school. And um, I remember trying to get out of my lessons with, with her because she was scary and I managed to break my arm. So that meant I could avoid piano lessons for a few years. That's and then a bit I, excessive, isn't it? It was quite excessive. I didn't quite mean to break my arm. It was all very exciting. <laughs> and then when, it was, when I was 11, my parents offered me piano lessons again. And I said, oh, no, please, anything but. And they said, well, what? And I just heard a flute player the day before, so I said flute. So I, we talked to the school. They had a lovely old gentleman that used to come in with a flask of tea and tea cakes. And he lent me a Rudelkart flute and gave me Tuna Day Book One. And I, I sort of taught myself. So it was a nice little half-hour interlude in my school week. Uh, and I, I remember very clearly the cups of tea, the tea cakes, and plain little shoes. Plenty of sugar in the tea? Lots of sugar. Uh, and do you still take sugar nowadays? I do. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your backstory with regards to going from learning to play the flute from a guy who didn't really teach you to play the flute to entering the Royal Northern College of Music as an undergrad? Yes, well, we had a, a, a neighbour who was uh, the pianist for the BBC Northern Symphony Orchestra, and he knew a flute player who was, was giving lessons, uh, Vivian Lynn, and I, we got in touch with her and I had lessons with Vivian, and she helped create my passion for all things flute wonderful lessons and so I was with her until we then moved from the north of England down to London uh, and then I went to the Guildhall School of Music as a part-time student and had lessons once a week there with Trevor Y and then on to the Royal Northern For those people who are listening to the podcast now, how did Vivian stimulate that excitement, that learning experience in you? Because to a lot of flute players nowadays, it can be a grind, learning the flute, getting up to a certain level. How did that stimulation awaken this joy? Yes, I think, I think with Vivian, she was, she'd just finished college. So she was full of energy, full of enthusiasm. It all seemed fun. So I didn't feel I had to work for my lessons. It was a case of I was just eager to play the music, learn the instrument. Definitely wasn't hard work. The hard work started when I went to the Guildhall and then it was uh, scales, exercises, studies. I don't remember any pieces. Well, you don't remember any pieces. That's like building the foundations of a huge great skyscraper, isn't it? Having to get the bottom and the substructure right first. That's right. Did the trick there. <laughs> so in your early years, obviously being in London, who really inspired you as a flute player? I think the... The main influence was William Bennett and I heard him when I started going to the International Summer School in Kent and his concerts were just spellbinding. I'd never heard a player like that. The incredible sound he got from the flute, the contrast he got within the sound, the musicality. It's someone who really spoke to you uh, communicated something that I'd not heard before. So Wibb was my biggest influence uh, at that age. And then a few years later, Geoffrey Gilbert, who again I met 
during the International Summer School. Uh, he was very, very different. He was so patient, so clear, so logical that he could listen to you play and say, ah, oh, you've got this problem, so if you do this for a few days, that will sort it out. His only intention was to, for you to improve and become a better player. He had no other agenda. Very, a very kind, a very generous man uh, with wonderful lessons. So you graduated in flute at the, from the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester. Then where did you go next? I was freelancing in the Manchester area and doing some London work at the, at the same mm-hmm. time. Was there many female flute players around at that time? I don't remember that many. <laughs> <laughs> it's very different to nowadays. It's very, very different to nowadays. It was, it was, it was difficult. The boys tended to do better. I didn't feel there was much equality at that time. I mean, there were two trailblazers at that time. There was a Tara Bentoven and there was Sue Milan. Mm-hmm. And they both created fantastic careers in a, in a boy's world. I was very shy. I was quiet, quite naive. And I found it very difficult to assert myself in that environment. Did you learn from having to be assertive or was it opportunities that opened up along the way that you grabbed? Was there anything that you missed because you were shy and naive? Yes, I think I don't think I pushed myself out there. I mean, it's a lot to do with contacts who you know. It's not just being of the right level. I knew I was at the right level, but I wasn't very forthcoming or, or pushy at that time. And as you... As you get older, you learn a little bit of the tricks of the trade and you get a little bit braver. So the early years as a flute player was tough for a shy and naive Claire. So what was your first orchestral position? Well, I'll take you back to when I was 13 or 14 for my first orchestral position. Oh. Yes, I, was, I auditioned for the Stockport Youth Orchestra and... That I went to audition on the, the night that they always met and I played my little piece, I think I played Syrinx and was immediately put into the orchestra and they were playing Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and I didn't even really understand about key signatures then and I remember we got to the last movement and I was having to play piccolo and I had to ask our tutor, a chap called Tony Walker, who's principal piccolo of the BBC Northern, I didn't know that at the time. And I had to say to him, what key are we in now? And he said, we're in C major. So I didn't make a complete fool of myself. So that was my first orchestral position. My first professional one was principal flute with Aquarius, which was a contemporary group, which was quintet, string quintet, percussion and piano, which was huge fun. Um, a lot of very different music and we travelled around the place Um, very enjoyable And London orchestras? I freelanced with London orchestras I freelanced with the LSO, the Philharmonia English Chamber Orchestra which was also fun it was was tough my first session with the LSO I I was the only woman in the orchestra because the three female string players weren't working that day and I found it very intimidating. And I think my second session with them was doing all the Tchaikovsky symphonies 
and the conductor came in for the first rehearsal and said, good morning, gentlemen and lady. And I just wished the ground would open up and swallow me. So over the years, have you seen a sea change in women in orchestras, women taking advantage of positions, or do you think it's been a gradual burn with a lot more to come? I think there's a big change. Uh, I remember a few years, I did about six years freelancing with the LSO, and then I did some work with the Philharmonia, and there were loads of women, and it was a completely different vibe. Much felt much more comfortable, and I felt I, I could fit in better there. So, and nowadays, there's a good, there's a good healthy mix, good, good equality, I think. So fast forward again, because we are fast forwarding through your career, becoming professor at one of the world's leading music academies. When did that happen? Well, I was, I was very lucky that things worked out for me. I first of all became a teacher at the junior school at the Royal Northern when I was 20. So I was asked to join the, the junior school there. And I, I'd always had a, an interest in teaching. I did teach a bit when I was at school. So I, was, I started teaching at the junior school, learnt a lot there. And then when I was 26, I was offered a full position at the, the main college. So I was quite young and it was very exciting and very scary all at the same time. I remember going out and buying a briefcase so I could walk in looking official. And then I taught there for, oh, I think it was about 17 years. And travelling from London to Manchester each week, because by in the, in the time since I started to, to, to I left, I'd moved to London and I got married and I had children. And I remember there was an awful lot of trouble with the travel because there were lots of train strikes and delays and Sebastian Bell a phenomenal flute player and teacher he rang me up one day and said would I consider teaching at the Royal Academy and I said oh let me think about that for a minute yes thank you very much <laughs> I would love to Right Claire you've already sort of touched on the fact that it hasn't really been that easy being a female in a man's world what have you learnt over the years from your experience? Well I think what is clear to me is that talent alone isn't enough to make it and you have to have skills in self-promotion in marketing um, and all that you can offer um, as a 21 year old I was rubbish I thought that just if I was successful in competitions it would be enough and it wasn't so you have to be multi-skilled and do you think it's harder nowadays where we have all this social media opportunities, channels for people to put their flute playing out to actually be heard because when you look at Instagram, you look at YouTube, you look at Facebook, there seems to be lots of people putting flute playing out. How do you channel your way through the mire? I think you, you try everything and that's the big difference between today and when I first started. I remember when I, I won um, a big competition in America, I thought that would open lots of doors and I came back to England and I wrote 800 letters by hand. Didn't have computers, I didn't have a typewriter. So I wrote 800 letters by hand and I got six replies. So it was really tough. I did get six concerts with those six replies, but it was an awful lot of work. And so today you can make contacts very easily with people 
and tell people who you are. So to conclude the podcast, Claire, and I know you've got your own set of questions that you're going to be asking your friends and colleagues in the music world. So I thought I'd come up with my own podcast nine questions for you called P9Qs. And it's very quick and very non-fluty, really, uh, just to get a, a flavour of the Claire that we don't see. So firstly, your favourite genre of music? I love all music. No, no, it's a cop-out. Really? No, all music, yes. And I probably listen to far less classical um, at home. Um, I, I, I like crossover music, like jazz. Can I go as far as rock? Rock, yes. Whoa. Anything tuneful, I'm, I'm, I'm listening. Okay, number two, your favourite musician. That's a big one. Yeah. Maxim Vengeroff, um, the violinist. Oh, really? Incredible. He just plays a note and you're, you're hooked. Everyone should go and listen to Maxim Vengeroff. Your favourite country visited? That's also a tricky one, but I think um, I'll say Italy. For the weather, the food, the countryside, and the music. And the people. And the people. Now this is really going to be difficult and it will test you. And I suppose it's quite an unfair question to ask you, but what is your favourite piece of music? <laughs> yeah, this is, this is impossible. But I'm going to give you two. I'm going to say the, the Bach G minor concerto, which is a transcription um, in terms of classical, mm-hmm. uh, especially the recording by William Bennett. And for non-classical, Nesta Torres and the Treasures of the Heart album. Phenomenal flute player, musician, uh, beautiful music. I could listen to Nesta Torres all day. That is a great piece of advice, and I will be doing that straight after we finished here. Next question. Favourite food? This is also terribly difficult. I love all food. I cook all types of food, uh, whether it be Italian, Indian, uh, Asian. Uh, I cook from scratch every day. And... Again, that's an impossible question to ask answer because it will vary according to the person playing it. But what do you think is the hardest flute piece you've come across? Well, the hardest flute piece I've played has got to be Christopher Caliendo's third flute sonata. Right. That was written for you, though, wasn't it? Uh, it wasn't written for me, but I recorded it. Oh. I recorded it a few years ago in L.A. Uh, a very tricky piece, great fun piece. And where, very hard. Where can people find this recording? It's on a recording called Mirzawa Plays Caliendo. Oh. It's on iTunes. Brilliant. Your favourite warm-up method? It's got to be a beautiful melody. Right, then last but one question. It's a very personal one. What is the most memorable moment you've had playing the flute? That's also tricky. I'll, I think I'll give you two, if I may. One was playing in America, um, a competition that I won, and it was in front of about 4,000 flute players. And I remember having to walk down the whole length of the hall to get onto the stage through all these flute players, and it was terrifying. But once I started playing, I felt almost empowered. I felt just I was in the right place at the right time, and I'd done the right amount of work for that particular moment. So that was memorable for all those people. 
And the other memorable moment was, I think, the first time I sat in the LSO. And just the sound surrounding you was incredible. And I remember playing Marla with Claudio Bardo conducting. Just phenomenal. And finally, and probably the most pertinent to our listeners, what piece of advice would you give to an aspiring flute player? Well, besides just practice, 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 I would say don't be a technician. Feel your music. Speak your music. Communicate your music. Claire, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for welcoming me down into your house. I know next week we're going to be talking about scales and studies in our podcast two series. However, people can get in touch with you and sending in their questions and also their requests for subject matter. And they can send that to flutepodcasts at gmail.com. Claire, thank you very much. Thanks, John Paul. Talking Flutes is a Trevor James Flute podcast production. More information can be found at trevorjamesflutes.com.